Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. We're going to continue our series, Best of Times, Worst of Times. It's week five, and as we've seen really in this series, but also throughout Acts, we've seen how this is true. Uh, It is the best of times where the church is growing in numbers, the church is growing in power, the church is growing in influence, making a huge difference, but that's also then at the same time caused the worst of times, where the church is now meeting severe opposition and persecution. We've seen where Peter and John sort of are the head of the spear, the tip of the spear, and they have been imprisoned a couple times. They've been questioned by the religious authorities a few times. We don't want you to preach in Jesus' name. We want you to stop healing in Jesus' name. Knock it off. But they refuse to knock it off. We saw then recently where it sort of grew. Then the next time they're arrested, all 12 of the apostles are arrested with this in the prison with them. Same threat, same issue, uh, same persecution by the same religious authorities. But now in Acts 6, we're going to start to see a shift and we're going to see that now it's personal. That's the main idea for today. Now it's personal because the trickle down of the opposition is continuing. And we'll see it this week, next week, and the week after as we finish up the series uh, in two weeks from now, be the last week. We see it's not just Peter and John. It's not just the tip of the top of the people that are being persecuted. It's trickling down now to other people and then broader as the church grows. So last week we looked at there were seven leaders who were chosen to help with the work of the ministry. Uh, the apostles are saying, hey, there's too much to do. We can't do it all. And so they, uh, the community chose seven men who were capable uh, to help lead other ministries in the church at the time. But now we're going to see one of these men is singled out for persecution. And his name is Stephen. So no, I'm not preaching in the third person today. Okay, uh, now this is who, as far as I know, this is who I'm named after, this is where my name comes from. Uh, so you know, this story, I love all the Bible equally, so this one's not more special just because my name's in it. Um, but we're going to see here that he was indeed singled out for persecution, and so this week we'll look at him, and then also next week we'll look at really even the, the most famous part of his life, which is, spoiler alert, his death. So Acts 6, we're going to read this next section here and get a view of who Stephen is and talk about him today and how hopefully we can emulate some of his character traits that we see here in Acts 6 to help us like it helped him. Acts 6, start at verse number 8, and here's what it says. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. 
The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. And that's how Acts 6 ends, kind of on this cliffhanger right into Acts 7, which we'll get into next week. So much like Peter and John earlier in Acts, in Acts 3 and 4, Stephen is just simply a man of faith who is doing good in the community. He's living his life, doing good work, being powerfully productive and used by God, and seemingly out of nowhere, he is opposed, mistreated, lied about, arrested, and really lied about under oath with false um, witnesses. But somehow, as we will see more next week, but somehow we'll look at it today, he withstood this attack. Somehow he was able to maintain his faithfulness. Somehow he was able to remain effective even in the midst of this type of circumstance. And so what we want to answer today is how did he do that? How was he able to remain faithful and steadfast and strong in the midst of severe opposition? His life is literally on the line. His life is literally in the balance. How did he maintain this strength to withstand this attack? And so we'll look this morning at five personal traits that we see in Acts 6. We'll go back to last week's description of Stephen a bit, and then some of the descriptions that we just read to look at five traits that I think helped him during this difficult time. And then I think that if we try to adopt these into our own life and make it personal to us, it can help us in our life of faith as well. So the first trait we see from Stephen here in Acts 6 is that he was well-respected. We looked at this last week, but let's read this again. Acts 6, verse 3, when they're choosing these seven people to help with the ministry, uh, Peter says, So brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. So we see well-respected here. We see two others that we'll get to later on this morning as well. Now, we don't really see any details of Stephen's life other than what's in Acts 6 and Acts 7, this little snapshot of his life. But I think this well-respected fe feature at the very beginning says a lot about who Stephen was. Because I think that this well-respected nature that he has points to a few things that we can know even though we don't know about him. It points to certain things about his character. Uh, it points to capability, responsibility. He's chosen for important ministry work. So he's not a slacker, right? he's not lazy, he's, he's reliable, he's a productive part of the community, so they know he can handle this responsibility that we're giving him in ministry. This, as we'll see, helped him even in this situation. I think this well-respected nature of Stephen's character points to consistency in his character. Because you're going to respect somebody that's inconsistent in who they are. They say they're one thing and then they do another thing. Or they say they're going to do this and they never do it. We, we wouldn't call that a well-respected type of person. But Stephen was. He's someone who would have, I'm sure, kept his word. He wouldn't have been fake or up and down uh, in an extreme way. We're all up and down, okay? No one's, we're not saying Stephen's perfect. Like even if you want to say he's a saint, <laughs> that doesn't mean that he reached, obtained perfection. He's a human. But still there was this consistency in his character that made him well-respected in the community. Basically, ladies, he's the kind of guy you could take home to your mom, okay? <laughs> this is who Stephen is. He's that kind of guy. Here's the other thing that I think this well-respected nature of Stephen shows us, and later on, even other character traits that we'll talk about. He's just simply a faithful Jesus follower. He's, that's who he seems to be. He was chosen, again, for important ministry work, and 
And, and it's this factor, it's his powerful yet sincere, consistent life of faith that got him in the crosshairs. That's what got him on the wrong side of the situation in Acts chapter 6. He wasn't looking for trouble, but his consistent, well-respected life of faith, it just happened to find it. Trouble found him in this situation. He was deemed a threat because of his consistent, sincere, powerful witness and influence. It says he's doing miracles in the community. He's, he's doing some powerful things, and he's well-respected. This type of trait is so valuable for us. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. No amount of money can replace authenticity in someone's life. No amount of status or clout can replace sincerity in someone's life. And that is what has an impact on people. That is what this is. It doesn't say Stephen was wealthy or well-connected. He was well-respected. And that was a huge thing for him in his life of faith. And for us, it's the same. The quickest and I think longest-lasting way to gain influence is by being real, inconsistent. That's how we can have a lasting impact on those around us. But as Stephen found out, that can also threaten certain people. You would think that'd be a positive thing, but sometimes people do try to buy influence. They do try to corner people into liking them or even threaten people into be my friend, you know, or I have this over you, so be nice to me. But Stephen here, just his consistent life of faith, his well-respected demeanor was a threat to the religious authority over him. That's all it was. They're threatened because they didn't have the influence he was having. They're threatened because they didn't have the impact he was having. And it was simply his life of faith. And so even though it may be, in some cases, maybe a not favored thing with others, it should be a thing that we try to emulate from Stephen is to have that well-respected, Christ-like character uh, in our lives. The second uh, thing that Stephen was, it says here in Acts 6, is that he was full of wisdom. The second character trait is of Stephen is he was full of wisdom. This is not, let me stress, this is not knowledge. This is not information. This is not he was highly educated. Now, those are good. Those are fine. I'm not against that, but that's not what this is. And it's not the first time that we've seen this distinction in Acts, is it? Back in Acts 4, Peter and John, the first time that they're arrested and brought before this same council, the council notices the same thing in them, this wisdom that they had that astounded them. Let's look at it, Acts 4.13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Same thing that we see in Stephen in Acts chapter 6. A life of faith is not a pursuit of knowledge, but it is a journey of wisdom. I'll say that again. Your life of faith is not a pursuit of knowledge. It's a journey of wisdom. See, knowledge is what to do. Wisdom is why and how to do it. Let me give you an example from the scriptures that we can probably all relate to. Look at something like the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, okay? Jesus gives us a list of things to do, if you look at it on the surface. He gives us knowledge, do these things. But the application of these things is where wisdom comes into play. Well, why should I live the way that Jesus instructs me to? 
If we can get through that, that's a life of wisdom, not a pursuit of knowledge. I know what to do. I keep all the rules. I, I, I color inside the lines. I stay inside the box. You know, I, I know I'm doing the right things, but that's like a works-based kind of faith. But we're getting, we're, we want to get past that, beyond that, to a journey of wisdom, knowing why and how to do certain things. And for the Beatitudes in general, really for the way of Jesus, I think also, uh, is it's this idea that the way of Jesus promotes mutual human flourishing in society at large. That's sort of a very sort of first century Jewish way of looking at it, but that's who Jesus was, a first century Jew. And so that, I think, would be on, heavy on his, like, top on the list of why I'm sharing this way. It's the, it's the best way to live. Not just because it's, you know, gives you a good reputation, although we've already said that's a good thing, but it's the wise way to live. It's a way to promote flourishing, harmony in this world and really prepare us for the world that is yet to come that is going to be that existence as Jesus describes life. Stephen does have knowledge. We're not going to deny that. We'll see that next week. I want to give you a little bit of homework this week. We're going to be in Acts chapter 7 next week. So this week, I would love for you to read through Acts 7 to kind of get ready because it's really long, and I'm not going to read 60 verses uh, all the way through next week because uh, I don't want you to leave, okay? So, and I don't want to fall asleep. But we are going to highlight and pinpoint certain things about it. But I would love for you to, in your brain, in your mind this week, to sort of have the context of what he's going through, where he's coming from, as we just kind of go through it a little bit quicker next week. So read uh, Acts 7. We'll see. Stephen has knowledge. He knows the scriptures. Forwards, backwards, inside, and out. He knows the scriptures. But he's effective not because of the knowledge only, but because of his wisdom. Look again at Acts 6, verse 10. It says, None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. This is, so what happens here in Acts 6 is really this begins as a debate among Stephen and these people from this synagogue, which we see the region that they're from, North Africa and then north of Israel. So they would have probably been Roman citizens who had been slaves or their parents had been slaves. And, but they also are of the Jewish faith. And so when a slave is freed in ancient Rome, they automatically get Roman citizenship. That's why it says they're called the synagogue of freed slaves. So from this and from Cilicia, it's highly likely that Saul, who we know of as the Apostle Paul, may have been one of the people debating Stephen in the synagogue in Acts 6. Now we know that Paul or Saul at this time is here in Acts 6 and 7 because he's named in Acts 7. He is there when Stephen is stoned to death. He's holding the cloaks of the people that are stoning him to death. He looks on approvingly, Luke tells us, as we'll look at next week and the week after, uh, of the stoning of Stephen. So it's highly likely Saul being from Cilicia, Paul, we know later, declares his Roman citizenship probably maybe because his parents had been slaves or he had been. And so then when he is freed, he gains citizenship. But now he's here possibly debating Stephen. And Stephen even out-debates Saul, which when we look at Saul later on in his ministry, that's like a pretty high achievement for Stephen. Like, if you can out-debate Saul, like the master of all, like he has knowledge but not yet wisdom, Saul. He has knowledge, but he doesn't yet have the spirit-filled wisdom that he will have soon. And Stephen out-debates whoever, if it's Saul, good on him. But whoever is there, no one could stand against his wisdom. So what they do is they lie about him. They hire false witnesses to perjure themselves in this trial to speak against Stephen. They say he's blaspheming God. He's blaspheming Moses. He's blaspheming the law and the temple. Doesn't get much worse than that for Stephen. If you're accused of that, not a great sign. 
And again, if these are false witnesses, they've been hired, so it's already cooked. The books are cooked here. So he's already in a no-win situation. But his wisdom could not be refuted, so they had to go to these under-the-table sort of tactics. You and I need wisdom in order to stand in the day in which we live. We need the wisdom that Stephen seems to have here in the situation. We need wisdom on, again, not just knowing what to do, but I believe, more importantly, when and how to navigate life when and how to pick certain battles and certain situations. We need wisdom because wisdom is the why behind the what of our faith. It's the motivating factor. If if, if I'm just going to follow a bunch of rules and there's no purpose or reason behind it, I'm probably not going to follow them very well for very long. But if wisdom helps me to know the why behind that, that's the motivation. That's the factor that changes everything in my life. So we need this kind of wisdom to stand in our day. I think much like Stephen, we're going to need wisdom in the coming days to stand against accusations and slander against us for our faith. It's coming. If you haven't already noticed, it's creeping in. It's coming. It's happening. We're not, it's not like a far-off thing. It's like, no, the people in power, the people in these institutions, they are not really on Team Jesus. And so if you and I are, we're going to have to be able to stand in wisdom against some of these attacks that come, lies that are told, slanders that are told. We have to have this kind of wisdom that Stephen had to survive and stand in our day. In a similar way, we need to have wisdom to answer even the most knowledgeable person. Some of the smartest people that you may ever meet may not be a follower of Jesus. And so they're going to they're gonna try to ask you gotcha questions all the time. So knowledge is good, but wisdom is better. Because I can give the textbook answer, but it may not satisfy them. But if I have the wisdom to know how to answer it in the right type of way to make them think, hmm, that's a compelling argument. That's what, that, that can make the difference. And that's wisdom, not just knowledge. So wisdom is the way that we need to lead our life full of wisdom like Stephen here in Acts 6. The third character trait that we see here uh, from Stephen is that he was full of the Spirit. We saw it already in Acts 6 verse 3, but then here again in verse 5, it says Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, Eight, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, perform amazing signs, miracles, miracles and signs among the people. So before Stephen was sort of put in this position, he's being powerfully used by the Holy Spirit. Signs, wonders, miracles. That, I mean, he's doing those things. He's getting noticed. And that's not the purpose of him doing it. He's not trying to get noticed, but he's trying to live in the power of the Spirit. But I think when he gets in this situation here in Acts 6, the fact that he is full of the Holy Spirit was one major reason why he was able to withstand this test that comes to him. It was the Holy Spirit empowering him, helping him, aiding him, lifting him up during this time. Really what it comes down to is he was prepared spiritually even though he was ambushed physically. It's sort of like a spiritual pop quiz. Anybody else hate pop quizzes in school? Hate them. Like, I'm trying to learn, why are you throwing this curveball at me? I, I know, to see how much you're learning. No, you're seeing if I'm paying attention. That's different. Like, I, if I have a date for the test, I'll be ready for that date because I'll cram because I know when it's coming. Until then, all bets are off that I know anything that's going on in this class right now, okay? That's why my education is such a waste because I just studied for the test. So I crammed it in, crammed it in, did good on the test, but then it's gone, right? So that's why my education is not worth the piece of paper it's written on, probably, if I'm honest, okay? But Stephen was ready, even though he could not have been ready. He was prepared because he was full of the Spirit. 
He was caught off guard. He was ambushed. This came from nowhere. One day he's preaching, teaching, doing miracles in Jesus' name, serving the church. Next thing he knows, he's being lied about, talked about in front of this powerful group of people for his life. And yet somehow he still spiritually passed the test. Peter, who's over the church, writes this later on, I think maybe with Stephen in mind. I'm sure with himself in mind too, but certainly we can see Stephen here. 1 Peter 3, 14 and 15 Peter writes, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, like Stephen was, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. This perfectly describes Stephen in Acts chapter 6. There's no way he could have been ready for what happened to him, yet when it happened to him, he was more than ready. Why? How? Because Jesus tells us in Luke 12, verses 11 and 12, when you are brought to trial in the synagogues and before rulers and authorities, so you see how he's already predicting what's going to happen? He already knows. This is the trajectory of my church. This is what's going to happen. When you are brought to trial in the synagogues before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. This, I think, in conjunction with the wisdom that we looked at, is like a superpower for Stephen. When I talk about wisdom, when we talk about wisdom, it's not just human wisdom, natural wisdom. You know, let's think about the best possible case scenario here. No, it's supernatural wisdom that we're talking about. It's spirit-filled, spirit-led wisdom that Stephen exhibited here. It's how no one could stand against him, not because it was his own wisdom, but because because he was full of the Spirit. And like Stephen, we need desperately to be full of the Spirit. We have to be. We need the person, presence, power, and preparation of the Holy Spirit to stand in our day. It's the only way we're going to make it. I don't have enough human wisdom to withstand what may be coming in my life. I can't see far enough ahead. I can't calculate well enough. I can't have every scenario. I'm not, you know, like Dr. Strange. I can't see the millions of possibilities and know what they are and know which one's the real one or the right one or the best one. I just don't have that wisdom. I need to be full of the Spirit to help empower me to always be ready like Stephen was, to have the answers that like Stephen had that I don't have. I'm stumped. I'm floored. I have no idea what to do, where to go, what's going on, but I'm going to trust the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to lead me where he needs me to go. The Holy Spirit will lead you to people that are in need. And as he leads you there, he will then give you the wisdom to know what that person needs and how you can meet that need. The Holy Spirit will guide you through difficult or impossible situations. That's what he does. The Holy Spirit will prepare you for the unknowns that come. And so my hope is that we would pray, Holy Spirit, fill me. Consume every part of me. Lead me where you want me to go and prepare me for whatever is to come. It's got to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be through the leading of the Holy Spirit that we be full of the Spirit to stand in our day. And then the fourth description that we see of Stephen here in Acts 6 is that he was also full of faith. These three in the middle, you can sort of put them all together in one, but they're listed specifically, so I wanted to attack each of them individually for a few minutes here this morning. It says, this was in Acts 6, verse 5, which we already read, so we we won't read it again, but it says he was full of faith. 
which I believe is the other reason he was able to stand this attack. So when it says full of faith, yes, he's full of faith. He has faith in Jesus. He's put his, he's put his faith in Jesus, so he is saved. But it's more than just saving faith is what got Stephen through this. It, it's what I would call perpetual faith. Not just that one time, that one day, you know, years ago at an altar where I gave my life to Jesus, but now I'm continually filled with faith. It keeps me moving, keeps me going. It's this perpetual faith. And what this does is it gives a redeemed worldview. This is what being full of faith, this is the importance of it. Because now that I've surrendered to Jesus, everything is different. My outlook on life is different because I'm full of faith. My attitude about others is different because I'm full of faith. The the mission that I believe God has for my life is now totally different because I'm living a life full of faith. That's what our faith should look like, this perpetual thing, perpetual motion, not a one-time event years ago, but who we are even now as we continue on. Hebrews 11 describes faith this way. Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for, It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. We already saw that factor. I added verse 2 on purpose because that describes Stephen earlier in Acts 6. But what our faith does, as I think Hebrews shows us here, is it helps us see beyond what we can see. Our faith helps us to see beyond what is natural into what is supernatural. Our faith helps us to see beyond the impossible to the God that impossible is not a word in his vocabulary. Our faith helps us to see beyond ourselves and see God's sovereign plan at work in our lives. That's what our perpetual faith can do. The way that Stephen faced this situation shows that he was seeing through eyes of faith in this way. It wasn't, you know, his attitude, clearly, it's not about me. If it were, okay, okay, I surrender, you know, I'll calm down, I'll be quiet. No, but his he was full of faith. So he said, this is about God's bigger plan. There's something at play here that's not about me, but God's using me to do something. That's what being full of faith looks like. He's saying it's not about this moment here and now. There's a bigger picture that God's doing something. There's a reason that the opposition is getting in all the way down to me, little old Stephen, nobody. Like, I'm not an apostle. I'm not really a leader in the church. I mean, I'm kind of like an underling here doing some work. But, like, they're not picking on Peter and Paul anymore, or Peter and John anymore. They're picking on me. So he's saying it's not just about this moment, but his eyes of faith helped him to see beyond to a bigger picture. His eyes of faith helped him to trust that God was in control even though he couldn't control what he was facing. His eyes of faith were able to help him see this. And this is the essence of what I think faith is. Faith looks outward and upward. We want to look inward all the time. You know, we want to try to either worry, you know, worry about my problems, myself all the time, or we want to try to fix my problems all the time. Either way, that doesn't work. Looking inward for any of those reasons doesn't work. But being full of faith looks outward and upward. Faith, being full of faith in our culture, is, is my faith about others? That's the question I should ask. Is my faith about others impacting them? What difference is God leading me to make in someone else? And will I trust him despite the questions that I have? Will I trust him despite the uncertainty that I'm facing? Will I be full of faith in the midst of this impossibility? Will I be full of faith in the middle of what might be uncomfortable or uneasy or weird or strange in my life or the things that are around me? But a person who is full of faith, which I hope that you are, lives this kind of life. 
It's what keeps us going and what's what keeps us effective is a perpetual life full of faith like Stephen had. Here's the last thing that we'll look at for just a couple minutes. The last description of Stephen is that he was full of grace. Acts 6, verse 8, one more time. Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. So the Greek word, we're going to get into the Greek for just a second. The Greek word for grace is this word charis. And when you look at that word, there's lots of different meanings. There, I mean, multiple, multiple meanings of this Greek word charis or grace. And I think there are at least three we'll look at for a second as we begin to wrap it up that describe Stephen in this moment. Three meanings of this word grace that describes Stephen in this moment. One of the most common ones, even non-religious speaking, is the idea of having charm or rhetorical skill. You actually see this word in the Odyssey, Homer's epic poem. This word charis is used in a specific um, moment early on in the story. So Odysseus, after a war, is trying to get home. And early on, after they end up on this island, they need a boat to get to where they're going to continue to go. And so uh, Odysseus and his friend Alcinous, they're there, and they're going to speak before the people and the king. So the story says that the goddess Athena gives them charis. uses the same Greek word Homer does that is used here uh, in the New Testament. And so what that looks like is his friend Alcinous, it gives him wonderful speech to be compelling to the king and the people to get the boat they need to keep going on their journey. It's exactly what Stephen does here. And so even when someone's reading this in the Greek, they're going to recognize that word maybe from that other story. I think it's so fascinating how Luke can tie in certain things and the Bible ties in certain things from outside of itself to get people drawn into what it's trying to communicate. It's a powerful thing that the Holy Spirit does when he inspires scripture. Stephen has added grace with his words here. It's this charm or rhetorical skill that he has. No one could stand against him because he had this charis, this grace upon him. The second meaning I think that we see here is also divine favor. This grace is divine favor. Let's remember what Stephen's being accused of. Blasphemy against God, against the law, against the temple, and against Moses. Again, doesn't get much worse than that for Stephen in this situation. But that last one, blasphemy against Moses, is what I want to focus on for just a second. I want you to look at a parallel here. The very last verse that we looked at, verse 15, it describes something that happens to Stephen physically in this moment. Acts 6, verse 15, it says, At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. So this is a physical sign of God's supernatural favor, grace on Stephen. His face literally began to glow, I don't know, be bright. And when you read that, maybe you've heard that somewhere else in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Again, he's being accused of blaspheming against the law and against Moses. And so God shows his grace, his favor on Stephen by having his face shine brightly. Because here's what happened back in, in Exodus 34. When Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he wasn't aware of it. His face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. This is what the kids would call an Uno reverse card moment, okay? He's being accused of blaspheming against Moses, and yet God, in his grace and favor on Stephen, causes his face to shine like only Moses' ever had before. 
God's like, I'm going to show you that you're on the wrong side of this really quickly and obviously. That's why they stopped and stared. They probably, maybe, possibly uh, thought, okay, this is weird. This is odd. His face is shining like Moses, yet we're accusing him of blaspheming against Moses. This is like a physical, supernatural proof of God's favor and grace upon Stephen here. And from all evidence, when he gives his speech in Acts 7, it's with this glowing face. Like, it doesn't say it, like, stopped or it dimmed or it turned off. It, this goes right into his speech in Acts 7. So with this glowing face, maybe because he was going to talk for so long, the sun was going to go down, they need a nightlight, I don't know. Uh, but he, he gave the speech, it seems, in Acts 7 that we'll get to next week with this glowing face like Moses, an evidence of God's grace on his life. Here's the third evidence of God's grace on Stephen, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here together. The third meaning of grace, or this Greek word charis, is also this idea of sweetness, is, is really the term. It's kind of a weird way to describe it, but that's the best way to describe it. So this is expressing not so much the description of grace that's given to Stephen, which we've already described, but really this is talking more about the grace shown by Stephen through the Holy Spirit. As we said earlier, he's not looking for trouble. Trouble found him. But when he was challenged and confronted and cornered, he show, grace is shown to him, and then he shows grace. Because what does he do? As we'll look at in Acts 7, he shares the gospel with the people trying to kill him. That's extreme grace being shown by Stephen. He's not cursing them. He's not saying, God, get them. He's not saying, oh, this is not fair to me. This is wrong. No, no. He's preaching the gospel to them, giving them a way out of the mess that they are in, even though he seems to be the one in the mess in the natural. He shares the gospel with them. He's full of grace, and then he extends that grace. I don't know about you, but I need God's grace in my life. I need, I need his grace to shine upon me as I interact with other people. I need his grace to be evident in my life. I want to, and then I want to be the kind of person that extends that grace to other people. Even if they're the ones trying to do me in or trying to cancel me or trying to say things about me or trying to you know, ruin your reputation, doesn't, like, that's what grace is. It, it extends this favor to people that don't deserve it. A, a grace, period, that sort of thing, that's what it is. And so may we be people who are full of grace. And that's really, as you've seen, hopefully, the theme, the challenge today, as we talked about, now it's personal, is not when we're attacked that we take it personal, but that we make it personal by looking at these traits that Stephen had that we, you know what, God, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your grace. I need your favor. I need everything that you got. <laughs> I'll take it. And it's, so it's not taking it personal, but making it personal. So some questions to consider as we close. How can we face so the social pressure that we will inevitably face to cave in our faith? How can we combat lies that are told about us when it comes to our faith? How can we prevail when we're outnumbered, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your family? How can we answer the most difficult questions, even trap questions? How can we stand when we're cornered and attacked? And it's by trying to see these things that Stephen had that we need. God, help me to maintain a well-respected, consistent character. God, give me your wisdom. Fill me with your spirit. God, exponentially increase my faith to stand strong and to stay focused on the task that you have for me. God, give me your grace to make a difference. And help me to extend grace 
in order to make that difference. As we close, let me just mention again, Stephen wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't a pastor. He didn't have a title as far as we know, and yet he still made a difference. So no one is off the hook here. You can do this. Now, really, okay, sorry, you can't do this. That's why we need what Stephen had, because he couldn't do it either. I misspoke there for a second, sorry. Um, but we need these things that Stephen needed. We need them just as much as he did, because our day is just as evil as his day. The opposition is just as hot and heavy as it was in his day. The challenges that we face are just as severe as now as they were then. We need to have these traits from the Holy Spirit that Stephen had, and you can do it. You can access the same Holy Spirit that Stephen did. You can, have, you can have the same favor on your life that Stephen did. You can walk with that same grace that he did as we avail ourselves to the Holy Spirit, as we open ourselves to his leading and the power that he has for us. We can make a difference as we make it personal in our world today. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you have everything that we need and that you are everything that we need. And so my prayer is that we would just cry out to you for what we need. That, God, we, we want you to give us that consistent character so that we can be well-respected, not so we can make a name for ourselves, not so we can be somebody, but so that we can just be that reliable source that people come to because we want to tell them how good you are. We want to share with them your, your love and your hope and your joy and your peace that, that only you can give. So help us to maintain that character that Stephen had. God, we desperately need your wisdom. We, need, we don't just need human wisdom. We need supernatural wisdom. That's why we need your wisdom and your spirit. Would you fill us once again with your wisdom, your spirit, not human knowledge or intellect, but a spirit of wisdom. God, we need it today. God, would you increase our faith to trust you no matter what comes our way. Help us to have that motivating factor, the why behind the what that our faith is such a big part of. Help us to trust you every step of the way. I can't see what's coming ahead, but you can. I can't handle every problem that I face, but you can. I don't have the answer to every question that is asked of me, but you do. And so I need you to keep me full of faith. May I just stay totally connected to you, tapped into the power of the Holy Spirit through our faith. And God, we need your grace. We need your favor. We need that sweetness that you give us. And then we want to be people that extend the grace that you've given to us. Your grace is not just for us to hoard up and for us to collect like it's something that we treasure, although we do, but we want it to be something that we give away freely to those that are around us. Even those that are coming against us, may we extend grace to them. Those that oppose us, may we extend grace to them. Those that are lying about us, may we extend grace to them. Those that come against us for nothing but our faith, may we extend grace to them. Help us to see Stephen in this story and help us to see that we need what he needed and you are the same God that will give us what you gave to him. We can overcome. Even if, like Stephen, we don't make it out alive, there's still something greater ahead. Help us see with eyes of faith that you are in control and you give us all that we need in every situation. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.